Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 508. And this is a rare one. You know, normally I record the intro and outro like weeks after I've recorded the episode, but I've just finished recording this episode and I'm buzzing from it. So I wanted to record the intro immediately. I'm joined this week by John Kearns, who I'm a big fan of. A lot of you will know him from Taskmaster. I've seen him loads of different places over the years. I always remember one gig in London with John, Tim Key, Lou Sanders, and a double act. I can't think of the name of the double act, but they had a really good... I won't do their joke. Um, It was really good. I just think John's amazing. I've seen him at the Fringe numerous times. He's so good, and I really wanted to to pick his brain. And we got to do that. I've, I've listened to him on a lot of podcasts as well, so I tried to swerve a lot of the stuff I've already heard, even though there is always a natural instinct to get these stories told to you specifically. But yeah, we had a really good chat, and you're going to enjoy it. And John's on tour. He's extending his tour. So, I mean, where are we now? We're in April. In May, he's in Bath, Glasgow, Newcastle, Brighton, Edinburgh. A load of these are sold out. In June, he's just extended his Soho Theatre run, which is wonderful. And then in September is when it's all all kicking off. Torrington, Newport, Cardiff, Leeds, Winchester, Swindon, Salisbury, Salford, Cambridge, Guildford, Norwich, Carlisle, Liverpool, back to London again. Aldershot, Leicester, Sheffield, Gloucester, Redhill, Reading, Oxford, Brighton, Poole, Nottingham, Hull. We're still going. Peterborough, Belfast, York, York again, Birmingham, just all over the place. And honestly, I can't recommend it enough. As a live comedian, he's one of my favourites. There's there's sometimes people that you're excited to see go on to Taskmaster because you're like, oh, the rest of the world gets to experience this. Do you know what I mean? Not that, like, I mean, John's a two-time Edinburgh Fringe Award winner, hugely s- s- successful. But do you know what I mean? Like, it's, you get those announcements and you're like, oh, people are going to be blown away by this guy. So, um, yeah, we had a lovely chat and you're going to enjoy it. As ever, we're brought to you by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. That's where you can buy all my merch. And patreon.com f- forward slash pip. Come and support the podcast there for a dollar a month or $2 a month or whatever it might be. It's a small amount and it just really helps pay the bills. So nice one for that. Let's get on with the chat. It's a cracker. It really is a cracker. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 508 with a wonderful... In fact, before... No, before I get into it, I also think you should, while you're listening to this, download John on Films to be Buried With, download John on Richard Herring, and download John on Off Menu. I've not heard the Off Menu one yet. It's only just come out. But check all of them out as well and just make it make it like a whole day of John Kearns. What a treat. Anyway, on with the podcast. This is John Kearns. This piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. This piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. This piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. Right, I'm here today with J- J- John Kearns. How are you today, sir? I'm very well. Thank you. Uh, thank you for for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. I'm a I'm a, I'm a big fan. I mean, I, I mean, first things first. I want to say I got sent your tour press release ahead of this, and it was the l- the least useful document I think I've ever received. <laughs> um, 
In what in what way? I mean, I got nothing from it. It it, it, it said a lot. It was good. I believe it was written by you. It made me laugh. It just didn't help my research at all. But thankfully, I'm a big fan, so so we're we're gonna be all good. Oh, you mean um? So I'm on tour at the moment. What my show's about? Yeah, kind of. It's yeah. I assume it's it's written by you, and it's what the show's about. And it's yeah. It's it doesn't really give a lot away, which is a joy. No, no. Well, I mean, you know, I I think if you saw my show and afterwards asked people what it was about, they um they'd go not sure really. <laughs> yeah, I've I, I've seen you s- s- several times, and again, I had that thought. I was like, oh, I'll be fine. There'll be loads to talk about. And then I sat down to prepare, and I was like, what were his shows about? What really? <laughs> I think um, <laughs> what the what the best reviews I got was. Uh, for a show that doesn't contain uh, any uh, identifiable jokes, it's uh, it's very funny. I think um, I think uh, I don't know. It's like you know when an author writes a book, they hand it over to the reader, they put it out into the world, and then they go, "It's your interpretation. It's it's what you know. It's it's what you make of the work." I think, especially with comedy, I was talking to someone. Uh, the other day and they're in a double act and I was saying, you know, they, they can kind of sit in a room and learn lines and prepare. But with stand-up, your double act is with the audience and so you can only do so much work. You know, of course you write a show and you <laughs> you hope it's good, but there is a certain, uh, you know, there is a certain, the audience are so much more important, I think, in comedy than they are in any other art form because you you need them. My, my point being... <laughs> I don't really know what my shows are about either, but I'm putting a lot of the blame on my audiences there as well. Oh, 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 how do you find that then? Because I completely agree, and I think particularly your style of comedy, it feels quite conversational with the audience, if you know what I mean. It feels like a really key part. So that must be hard to know what is going to work and what isn't going to work until you get out there, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, being on tour at the moment, you... This sounds an obvious thing to say, maybe, but I don't. I don't think it. It is obvious, but you do play some rooms that are set up perfectly for comedy, mm. and you know the low ceilings. I think an audience being very close to you, not being too high up, all these kind of things. And you know, when I've come off stage at these venues where I think it's gone quite well, I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute, what what worked there that maybe didn't work the night before when I was. 10 foot in the air in a church hall and you go <laughs> oh it, it's because uh going back to your point about the conversation side of things if if an audience are closer to you you literally can ask a question and they snap straight back because you know they're sat right at your feet yeah. whereas in a theater you know i guess i'm still at a level where i can weave in and out of maybe a bit of crowd work or, or using the audience i think if you're <laughs> if you're kevin bridges <laughs> you're, you're very much going out yeah. acting like you have to act like the not that they're not there but they're certainly not a part of maybe what you're hoping to do because they're there's there's thousands of them and they're, they're far away so i think my style you know where we shape buildings buildings shape us i think my comedic style certainly came from the rooms that i i i, I started out in and, and have played uh at the level i'm at whereas I think if maybe you join an agency like Off the Curb or Avalon, which who I'm with, if you start out with them early, they're going to get you supporting acts in theatres and arenas very early on. So mm. I think how you, uh, you 
the rooms you play certainly affects your style. It's really interesting. And, and I honestly try not to ask every comedian about the fringe because it's often a very depressing subject for them. But I think that, I feel that should, that feels like it would be different f- f- for you because I put you kind of in that, that kind of category with Tim Key where you've had success for years at the fringe and got this, like you feel like a key part of the fringe to, to me at least. But the fringe instantly came to mind when you were saying that, because the one year I performed at the Fringe, I adored being in the same room night after night after night and getting to know that room and getting to really... It allowed you to focus on the material and the show rather than, oh, we're in a new venue. Obviously, it was a new audience every night, but it was a beautiful thing. And so do you enjoy that element of the Fringe, that kind of you get to really hone the show rather than, as you say spend the first 10 minutes getting used to the height of the stage or the lighting or the 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 sound or anything else yeah yeah ma- massively i think you know again i found it on tour going back to rooms uh that i've performed in before and with the fringe as well yeah you're in that room for 25 days and yeah i think it's it's you know it, it's like a, like a football team might see a home a home game or an away game or you know st james's park is a hard place to visit for a football team kind of thing like yeah i think you immediately, if you're playing a room you've not played before or you're visiting a town or a city you've not played in before, you kind of, um, yeah, you're walking out into in, into the unknown. If you're playing a room that, you know, when I, when I first did the Fringe, I did the Free Fringe. Mm. And, uh, you know, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's basically any room above a pub or any, any function room or, you know, anywhere in, in Edinburgh that can be made a venue, is a venue. So that means there's no backstage, there's no dressing room, there's nothing like that. So I I started out, those first two shows I did 10 years ago now, I started out on stage. So as the audience came in, I was stood on the stage mm. and they walked in and they, they didn't know who I was and they, they funnel in, all sat down looking at me and I'm just pacing while I was playing music off my iPod. And looking back, what that did was it meant that they were walking into my space you know, you walk into a theatre, empty stage or the curtains up and you're just sat there, you know, reading the programme, having a chat, checking your phone, lights go down, right, what's going to happen here? If you walk into a theatre space and the performer's already walking about, all of a sudden there's like a reverence. You mm. you kind of walk, you're walking into to their space. Yeah, so, I completely agree. It's like having a countdown clock as well. Like, you know, you know it's coming, you know it's about to begin and that does change how things are. I find that a, a, a countdown clock is a really powerful thing because it builds that anticipation. You know it's about to, if it's music's about to come, the show's about to start. And that's what you do by being up there at that time. As soon as they enter the room, it's like, oh, it's coming. And then that builds and builds and gets them in the right the right mindset, maybe. It's, it's funny how, uh, how how it changes things. Like I, um, yeah. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't actually done that in my last few shows because i found it um quite scary actually right but um you know you mentioned tim key there i know he you walk in and he's already there and james acaster's uh last stand-up show you walked into the room and and he was there you know in his sunglasses djing it, it just it just changes the environment so with edinburgh that's how i feel when people are walking into uh the room and you know that room and you know the show you can put on, especially like say the day before or or if you've been having a good run, you know, you're excited. People feel like they're stepping into your space. And 
you know, there's a wider conversation to be had about the worth of Edinburgh now and mm-hmm. is it is it something you'd recommend people to do and all that. But if you have a good time up there and the, the, the lessons you can learn up there, right, I think it's invaluable in, in that respect. I think it's really interesting just talking, and obviously I'm I'm not a stand-up, but I, I, I love to observe when stand-ups are taking more into account than just the jokes. Again, I love the kind of trying to take control of the mood, of the setting, of all these things. Again, on my one fringe run, because I was doing spoken word, and l- l- loads of my stuff is so miserable, but I didn't want it to be that kind of vibe. So I consciously did it in a venue that had a bar. And I did that. I'd stand up, I'd start out on stage in silence. And then as soon as we're ready, again, because I've got to know the crew and everything, we'd hit the lights. I'd perform DuckTales theme tune over the top of the DuckTales theme tune with lights, everything. And then go straight into the serious kind of depressing poems and stuff. But it's, again, it it makes a completely different feel to if I'm just going up and going, are you ready for an hour of serious poetry and we're going to go on a journey here? It's like, no, it's meant to be a night out. And again, I love finding those ways to adapt that. As you mentioned, James DJ and at the start when he was doing that run where he decided he wanted to have a cool persona rather than a, <laughs> a nerdy persona. And that was the perfect thing. That's to go, look, and again, it works on both levels as well because it's clear he's trying to be cool at the same time. So it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's a beautiful thing. I, I think, um, yeah, that, that, the idea of acknowledging a room before, you know, it, it's how you start, you know, it's, it means you're not starting on the back foot if you're acknowledging maybe what a room thinks of you before you before you kick off. But I think especially in Edinburgh, I think one of the the keys to having a successful show is is not doing the same show every day mm. and not kind of doing a show which if you moved rooms would be exactly the same. I think you have to be with that audience in that moment, on that day, at that exact time, and an audience can see that. And if you're, you know, I, I, I kind of, I had a rare, I guess, experience of Edinburgh in that, you know, people can get caught up in awards and stuff like that. and you know, I, I, I won those awards. But what's interesting is over the years, I've kind of realised why I did well, hmm. maybe 10 years ago, whereas 10 years ago, I wouldn't have known maybe, whereas now I see the patterns. So last year, for example, I saw Sam Campbell's show the night before, he, you know, his show had been nominated for this comedy award in Edinburgh. And I saw it the night before the awards and I knew immediately he was going to win. Right. Because he was in the room that night. He was talking to us as if it was Friday night and if the awards were tomorrow and there were judges in and all that stuff. And I think, and I, I didn't see the other shows, but what you can't do is like stay in amber and kind of not move and yeah. go, right, this has to, this has to not breathe. Like I have to do it line for line. Perfect. If you're loose, if you're free, if, like I said, if you're in the room at that time, I know it's such a silly thing to say, but it opens an audience up another 50%. Yeah. And, um, you know, if anyone does ask me for advice, that it's, 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 it's vague and it's crap, but be in the room is the number one thing. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. so many comedians, you see them phone it in or just do the material, their ideas, their jokes are more important. They want to get them across. 
And it really isn't that. And it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't even have to be phoning it in. It can be you're so focused on the performance. Like, again, you're you're playing, you're Kevin Bridges playing an arena rather than a well, guy yeah, in exactly. a basement, yeah. a guy in a basement at, at, at the fringe. You yeah. Know? And, and I guess that's the, you know, I've never, <laughs> I've never performed at the O2 or, or the Glasgow, it's on 20 nights at that Glasgow arena there. But I guess that's, that's their genius. Yeah. In that they are at a level or at a performance level where they can, it can feel like uh, they're talking to you, but obviously you're in a stadium of 15,000 people. I think, mm. um, yeah, it's a, it's a, an amazing skill, which I, uh, I have, I have no interest of learning. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, speaking of the kind of nuances of controlling the feel of a room and the atmosphere of a room, the last time I saw you, it was a work in progress at the Fringe. I was sat a couple of seats away from Richard Osman of Pointless and House of Games, and it really changed the vibe of the room. So was he, he there every night? Was he part of that? Was that, <laughs> did you get Richard Osman along to really just put people a bit, go, oh, that's, rich. that's Richard yeah. Osman, isn't it? He's, uh, he's pricey. Rich. He's pricey. <laughs> but... Uh... He's, he's worth every penny, that guy. And when you're asking people what they do for a living, I was waiting for you to get to Richard. I thought it was all building up to it. And you, sir? T- he tall man at the back? It, <laughs> <laughs> I know. He's, uh, well, he's... Uh, he, well, the, and he must get this all the time, but he's so recognisable. Yeah, yeah. That it does change... Uh, it does change the vibe. Yeah, because um, it's a bit like it's a bit like you know, I imagine North Korea or like Iraq back in the day when everyone's just staring, going, "Can we laugh?" Yeah, he found it funny. We're off. <laughs> yeah. You know, you kind of. Um, I'm sure you. I'm sure you've had this where people, you know, people come see your shows and they are, uh, you know, they're famous and um, you can. <laughs> I, I remember. Back in uh, again playing the free fringe rooms, uh, it's about a sixty seater. There's again free fringe, no lights. It's just you know room above a pub, lights on, crack on. And um, Steve Coogan was there with John Bishop, and he like they both came along to watch. And yeah, that was a very similar situation in that you've mm. just got the whole room going in a weird sort of way. They're like, oh great, well if they're here, that that means this is going to be good. <laughs> but there's also such a pressure because yeah. you go, well, Christ, if they if they don't, um, you know, if they don't laugh, uh, the whole room won't laugh. Yeah, it's a mad one, isn't it? It's a big distraction. It changes the room and it changes you as a performer. If it's someone you're a fan of, I always remember playing a gig in in Nottingham and there was an MMA fighter in the, in the crowd. I was a big fan of Dan Hardy and he was into his punk and that and he'd come along and I played the punkiest gig I'd ever played. I mean, we always got rowdy, but at that one, I crowd surfed to the bar, did a shot and crowd surfed back. <laughs> that that wasn't my normal g- go-to in between songs about suicide and breakups. <laughs> but I got rowdier than I've ever been because I was like, oh, I want to impress. But it meant for a good gig. So, you know, it benefited. Well, it meant- I mean, it focuses the mind. <laughs> yeah, you, you get You get excited. I think, I mean, again, that's kind of what's nice about The Fringe is that Amelia Clark came a few years ago to my show. And again, you know, yeah. I've never met her. I don't, I don't know. I didn't know she was there. Yeah. 
And then she Instagrammed about some shows she's seen in Edinburgh. <laughs> and um, she mentioned my show and I was like, wow, you know, she's, uh, she's pretty famous. She had yeah. like, I mean, like 30 million Instagram yeah. followers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For about, for about a week after, there was like, I'd, you know, in a room of 150, there's about 30, 30, 16 year old girls all sat watching me and it is not what they want. <laughs> and, you know, you're there going, I understand why you're here because, you know, your hero has said, has said she went to the, uh, fridge for a few days and has recommended the show but so i mean that's that's kind of the thing if, if famous people come along it, it's it's a poison chalice really because a either people are looking at them open they laugh or b if they recommend it it might send a completely wrong audience to your shows yeah it's a weird one how are you with the engaging with anyone like that i always remember i did a gig with Stuart lee and steve coogan and I chatted to Stuart Lee and he was lovely. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're that Scrooby. Yeah, oh, you're that poet guy. It was love, And I was like, and he's a hero of mine. And I went to say hello to Coogan and I thought, cut me losses. It's gone well. I don't know, you know, that went better than I could have hoped. So I didn't. And I, I regret it to this day because he's obviously an absolute hero. But yeah, how are you with that? Are you? Would you rather not have the interaction or are you swooping in to go, thanks for coming? No, I think after the show, you got to let you. Got, they have to come to you. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I think I've you know meet your heroes. Is that a thing? I I think with with stand up, and I guess it's it's well, it's quite it's a rare art form in that a huge performer or a big 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 act has to go right to the bottom if they want to start new material again. Mm. obviously they can book rooms, do work in progresses and all that. But my point being is you could be starting out, you could be a couple of years in and you could be gigging with with one of your heroes. Yeah. And so, you know, when, when you're meeting people, there isn't kind of like, you're never meeting them on like a red carpet or yeah, you're yeah, kind of, of like uh, visiting their palace and the, the gates swing open. You're equals. You you're thrown in together. Yeah. Yeah. And they're looking through their notes. And usually they're a lot more nervous because... <laughs> going back to say if you play arenas it's actually more terrifying to play little rooms because you can see the whites of people's eyes and the, you know it's a numbers game there's less people that might laugh um, you know not not as much as maybe more people would in a room so it's kind of uh, I think that's kind of what's amazing it's, and again going back to somewhere like the fringe you can walk around and and meet people and have people come to your shows that are the, that are heroes that when you're at school you kind of couldn't even dream about meeting so I don't know, really. I think there isn't anyone I've met yet. I'm trying to think. There isn't anyone I've met who I've been disappointed by. Yeah. Because I think comedy is so humbling. Yeah. There isn't anyone who's, I don't know, it's not a world where you can be arrogant because you could just walk out and be absolute dog shit and people go, yeah, you're crap. What was that? Has Brett Goldstein ever told you the story of when he and Lou Sanders met for the first time? It's it's my favourite comedians meeting story of all time, and I saw I saw you, you Lou, and and, T, and Tim on a bill together once. But they're backstage, and they've kind of said brief hellos, and then it, it came to mind because exactly as you said they've got they've, they've got their notes out, they're sitting there, they're writing and stuff in silence, and Lou's writing away, and then she slides her note across the table to Brett, and it says, "Please give Maddie back." <laughs> Well, <laughs> it's 
is the most perfect introduction to Lou and Lou's humour and Lou, the wonder that is Lou's Wow. I mean, yeah. That what an is... intro. There's me being too nervous to say hello to Steve Coogan and Lou's just out there just, just, just bringing... I, what's funny is they must have... <laughs> that must have been like 2007. Yeah. Whereas I could be, Lou would do that. Lou did that yesterday to someone. <laughs> Guaranteed. She Guaranteed. Must, I, reckon she, I reckon she's got a notebook of just bits of paper that say that and just... That's her sliding it across. She does it to everyone. Planes, it's, trains. It's, it's a pre-printed book. She's got different ones and she just picks the, the correct one for the situation. She reads it perfectly. I mean, as well, like... <laughs> I mean, it's chaos. It is complete chaos because... Also, the first time you're meeting someone, first time... Mm, mm. And that's an open mic. It's not like them now. It's not, yeah. he's got two Emmys and she's Lou Santos. Yeah. This is, you know, probably somewhere in Crystal Palace about to perform in front of six people and she's sliding that across. <laughs> I, I remember amazing. first, it's funny though, those first people you meet when you're starting out, and I'm, you know, I'm sure you've had this, and, and of course, and, and it's an obvious thing to say, but you do look back with rose-tinted glasses at these things because yeah. you were gigging, all trying to work it out at the same time. You all knew each other's material. You know, you all had like day jobs or, you know, you were kicking about maybe. like I don't know. It was, the hard work you did back then pays off with, with who you see now is is still doing it and, and doing well. Like I always think like Joel Domit was one of the first people I met doing stand-up. And, yeah. I mean, what's funny with him is he's doing exactly what you'd expect he would have done. 15 years ago you know handsome chap hosting these uh these kind of shows and, and being funny with it but um yeah i uh i don't remember the first time i met brett or lou but i certainly didn't slide across saying uh <laughs> give maddie back Fucking hell. i mean that that feels dangerous now but back then that was fresh it's, it's 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 a rough one, but it's a beautiful one. Um, but I mean, there's something I wanted to talk about with, and it plays into you mentioning Amelia Clark uh, Instagramming about your show, and you know, also w- winning awards at the Fringe, but then going on Taskmaster as well, and you're touring after Taskmaster. I've spoken, or uh, uh, James A. Caster has spoken publicly about this so many times, but we've had a fair few chats about it about the difference in the audience, the change in the audience. And The Fringe is a famous one for that. The day after you're nominated, it's a different room, a different gig. It feels completely different. How do you find that? Um, Because, I mean, a big part of this is when I saw you at The Fringe doing your work in progress, it was pre-Taskmaster, and you were talking about the fact that on stage, you wear some teeth and a wig. And on Taskmaster you weren't going to be wearing teeth and a wig. So people... So it's it's absolutely heightened that everyone that saw you on Taskmaster goes, I want to see him live, is getting at least a very different visual to what they were expecting when they maybe um, booked the tickets or fell in love with, yeah. with your humour. I think, um, you know, I've, I, I kind of... Uh, I make jokes. I make jokes. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, can't, I, I do reference it. I kind of uh, make out that Taskmaster was like my Trojan horse, where I've kind of uh, <laughs> brought it, brought in all this audience, and now I'm just gonna put them through my my live stuff. I think um, 
I mean, again, I, I say this on stage now, but I'm like, you know, if you're over, uh, you know, I, 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 it's the 16 year olds that I, I hate hurting because, you know, they're, they're the ones that I think, yeah, maybe they, um, maybe they're not getting what they wanted, but you could if, put the, them off comedy for life. <laughs> This could be their no, first no, comedy the gig. Opposite, and the this opposite. could be their first comedy gig and they could go, it's not what I thought. It's really not It's the opposite. It's the opposite. I'm getting them into it. They're going, bugger me. This is, this is fantastic. What there is are no rules. Look at this. <laughs> it's, well, I mean, it was a, uh, because, you know, you go on something like Taskmaster and, it, and it's like I imagine how live at the Apollo was 15 years ago in that. Mm. Your your ticket sales uh, shoot up. I I've I'll be honest. I I've enjoyed like when, when, ten years ago when no one knew who I was and I was doing Edinburgh. That was a room of people going. I have no idea what I'm about to see you. And you played that room, and that was fun and anonymity and surprise is such a powerful tool in a comedian's armor. And the yeah. more the more a comedian is known, there's a shorthand with the audience there. But also the surprises are less. And, you know, it's why a comedian does the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Because that's what people want and people know you. And I think Stuart Goldsmith, he kind of asks whether a comedian can change twice. Meaning an audience sees you, they like you. You know, if you did a David Bowie and, you know, completely changed persona, would, would they go for you? Hmm. So it's interesting in that a lot of people maybe have come to me you know, on this tour, I'm playing places I've not been to before. And I'm thinking, right, this could be a room that is 100% brand new to me. The difference is that I've been doing this for a job for a decade now. And not that I think you should be able to play every room, but I think I can play a room, especially if you've got an hour. So I'll be honest, I'm, I'm absolutely loving that it's a room who aren't sure what they're seeing, maybe. I mean, the dream is like a mix. <laughs> <laughs> the dream is obviously, you know, some people know exactly what they're seeing and other people don't. But I, I am enjoying converting people, you know, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, because also it's not a character that I play as in there's another name and there's a backstory. It's 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 a persona of me talking to you now, but my stage persona, what I do when I stand on stage. And, and I think after five minutes, people are absolutely fine with it. They go, yeah, fine. Purely because though I've never been more grateful to have a show with with punchlines. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, if I'm touring a show from eight years ago, <laughs> people are going, Well, fuck me, mate. I mean, you know. You I'm, need you need the people who've seen you before in the room to to cue when they're meant to be laughing. This is <laughs> it's okay to laugh now. This is Yeah. yeah. Whereas now you, the writing I think's a bit strong not stronger, but more versatile and more Look, you know, you're playing somewhere like last week I was in Barnard Castle and Northallerton and, you know, you're in these market towns in the northeast. You've got to, what are you going to do? You put, you've put on a show. People have come to see your show. What are you going to do? And before every gig, I tell myself, you don't know who's in. There could be someone in that will blow your mind. Could be Richard Osman. <laughs> you never Could know. be another Osman show. <laughs> That guy could afford a helicopter. He'll be like, you know, he, he could be anywhere. Uh, you don't know when a reviewer might pop up. You don't know if uh, there could be a family member in. People have paid uh, babysitters. 
it might be their night out. You don't know what's going on in people's lives where they've gone. I need to, I need to clear my head, or I need to. So you just got to do the best show you can do. And I make, I, I do make jokes about the idea that I might not be what people thought on Taskmaster. However, <laughs> and again, it's this constant. You can overthink it, but you know, last week, for example, in North Allerton, I think fifty percent of that room had never seen Taskmaster. Mm. So if I'm going out there going. Yeah, oh, you're all here because of this. They're going, no, mm, yeah, I'm here because yeah, yeah. I got, I come to this place, you know, two, three times a month and uh, you were on. Apparently you're a comedian or <laughs> I heard you on uh, this podcast once or my mates brought me. I don't know. And all of a sudden you're like, right, mm. <laughs> I need to, uh, I need to play to my audience that I've, I've built over 10 years. I also need to remember that there's a new audience in who hadn't heard of me till maybe six months ago but who are expecting a different version. But then there's also another group of people that have absolutely, you know, don't think you're anyone. They've got no idea who you are. Yeah. Put on a show. Just do do your do a funny show. So you can overthink it. Taskmaster is amazing. I was delighted to be asked to do it. It's amazing seeing its effect when you're on it. But there's a new series out right now. They've already filmed the next series that's going to be out in the autumn. The live aspect is the thing that's going to sustain my career so yeah i have to almost not bite the hand that feeds me but certainly you got you got to move on yeah was there a moment even a second that you considered wearing the wig and teeth for the entirety of taskmaster i thought it'd be funny yeah and then i don't know i probably uh had a cup of tea and went i think it would be (laughs) it would be funny in that first episode for 10 minutes and then during a three-hour record, you'd be sat there and then Greg Davis is looking at you and he hasn't got a clue who you are and he's thinking, these are going to be the longest 30 hours of your life, boy. <laughs> because I think what would have happened is by by episode five or six, I would have had a complete <laughs> breakdown. Someone, you know, you've got Greg Davis and Alex Horn just ripping you to shreds. I think that, you know, I... I I spoke to a couple of people and they said they enjoyed the house, but they didn't necessarily enjoy the studio bit. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very interesting what kind of comedians maybe don't like that bit because there's a line of thought. Mark Maron talks about the reason why comedians become comedians is because it, it controls why people laugh at them. And I think that's quite good because Mm. I think you can certainly see, especially like someone, someone like Taskmaster, you've got one of the best comedians in the country ripping you to shreds and some comedians can't handle it. They hide it well because they think, well, I, I got to just sit here and laugh. But <laughs> it's funny seeing the comedians that don't like why they're being laughed at because they're not in control of it. Yeah. So if I was sat there wearing a wig, <laughs> then Craig's just constantly going, why the fuck do you wear that thing? I think I'd, you wouldn't have heard from me again. Explain this or we're not moving on. <laughs> Oh, you can imagine it. Yeah. It would have been a car crash. So no, I, 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 I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of, uh, I, I enjoy almost the cartoonish two dimensional side of, of what I do. Like I always think, you know, if a cartoon was drawn of, of the character or the persona that I am on stage, it could fit quite easily into mm. like a little, like those Sunday newspaper three, three panel ones, you know, like a, yeah. I'm making out like I'm like Garfield, but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like you know, it's, I, I kind of, 
I like the cartoonish elements of it. And people always kind of ask if it if it acts like a mask or if it's like, oh, you know, like the Greek the Greek idea of by putting on a mask, are you then more able to to be yourself? Mm-hmm. There's of course something to that, but there's two things there. One, every comedian wears a mask. Yeah, the stepping on stage. Again, you mentioned earlier that it's not so much a persona, but there is stage you and not stage you kind of yeah, thing, you know? And, and, and every single comedian is that. Yeah. And there are obviously people that are exactly like how they are off stage that they are on, but there are things that they say off stage that they never say on stage. Mm-hmm. There's an editing and there is a, a veneer, and yeah. mine is very obvious because I, I literally slap it on. But the other point is also, it's not about a mask necessarily for the performer and what that does. It, it's, it's also what it does to the audience. It disarms the audience. Yeah. I don't have it now, but back in, back in the day, people would say, oh, I saw a picture of you or I kind of saw what you did and I thought that wouldn't be for me. Mm-hmm. But then I saw your show and I was like, oh, it's not what I thought it was kind of thing. Yeah. And it's, I'm, I'm just very interested in what it does to an audience and what it does to a performer. And yeah. <laughs> There are many people making millions of pounds that are like, yeah, well, you do that, pal. You, you, you stick to fighting that fight. We're just going to crack on, do some stand-up and make make a lot of money with BAFTAs. But you, you can't help what you do. Mm. You know, Christ Almighty, if, 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 if there was another lane, you know, you do what you do, I do what I do. Like, if we're all the same. But I often think that in moments where maybe things aren't going well or if a show doesn't fly, there's great comfort in going, I'm, I'm doing all I can do here and it might look a bit odd in that you think why is why have decisions been made to get to that point but I take great comfort in going well no this is me being true to myself here and this is what I do like you know Paul O'Grady passed away this week yeah and it was really interesting I was listening back to his like Desert Island Discs he was talking about Lily Savage and he was saying you know he when he took the costume off he shoved it in the cupboard and that's where Lily lived he was like, they're two separate things, mm. not getting involved. And that's how I do see being on stage. I really do walk off stage, <laughs> take off my wig, chuck it in my bag and go, right, it's done. It's work. Um, which maybe isn't a romantic uh, thing to say, but I don't know. That's kind of it. It actually, it helps my mental health, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I just, you know, take off the, take off the, the glittery jacket, the wig and go, right, that's it. That's, that's me done. Back to me like normal. I don't struggle at all with stage persona and off-stage persona because they're two very, very different things. Have you have you ever struggled? Because again, this is all absolute m- music to uh, to my ears because it's exactly what I see. It's the dedication to your art and your art alone, as such, rather than all other sides of it. it like what what's important is what's going on on stage, um, and I'm not one of those. I was in my teens. I'm not one of those who are like, oh, if a if if the small band I was into gets successful, then they've sold out. But has there ever been any temptation to? Because again, things like Taskmaster, guessable, big shows on TV, really good. When you then like a lot of big companies or big p- performers might say, right, now you're getting this exposure on TV. The thing to do: lose the wig and the teeth on stage. I mean. This one annoys me, but just get some social media that's actually fucking at John Kearns so people can find who the fuck you are. Um, but 
but but things like that and again it's kind of beautiful that you've not because again I definitely think with Taskmaster and and Guessable was kind of the first time I saw your face as such yeah and and so I guess has there been any temptation the other way rather than to wear the wig and teeth on Taskmaster to stop wearing it on stage the 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 short answer is no I think because like at this moment of time talking to you this morning I'm still very interested in what I can do and where I can go. I don't feel like I've hit that glass ceiling yet where, and again, listening to Paul O'Grady, it was interesting because he got rid of Lily Savage and was Paul Mm. O'Grady. And he got from, again, what I've read, I think he got a bit sick of it. And he was talking about how, you know, people would call him up and he'd go, well, who do you want, Paul O'Grady or Lily Savage? And they go, oh, we want Lily. And he goes, well, I'm not doing her today. So it's either me or that's it. Mm. And it's interesting, you know, again, reading people's obituaries about him where they go, oh, it was good that he got rid of Lily Savage because then you could see the real Paul and the warmth of him and all that. And It always kind of annoys me when people talk about people stepping out of their characters and then they go, oh, yeah, there we go. That's the real one. Mm. No, 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 no. The the real them is their character. It's it's, that they're showing a side there that, so, you know, people went, oh, Lily Savage was a bit coarse. Maybe she was a bit, uh, you know, uh, venomous. And then when Paul O'Grady did his chat show, you saw the warmth of Paul O'Grady. Well, you know, <laughs> I think real Paul O'Grady was probably Lily Savage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. the act might have been him sat on, uh, you know, <laughs> on ITV at 5pm saying that, you know, the latest book by whoever he just had to have on his show was amazing. yeah. People always go, oh, yes, when they've stepped back from the character. That No, no, no. That So what when I write or when I perform, that side of me, I enjoy letting out. I enjoy the freedom of it. I enjoy the, the idea that, you know, the abruptness maybe or the kind of... I, I don't like comedians that have answers, you know. I'll go see a comedian who asks 50 questions and doesn't know the answer to anything. That's my vibe. My stuff on stage, I'm always asking questions. I don't know anything. I've rarely got an answer for anything up there. And I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm still enjoying it. I'm still excited where it can go, you know, and dream big with these things. If you think of like old silent movies like Keaton or Chaplin, they had a silhouette, they had a line, they had these pieces of costume that they, if they were walking down the street, you'd know who they were. And I don't feel I've hit the, what, uh, not the capacity, what word am I trying to think of? Uh, I haven't fulfilled what I can do yet. And the thing with telly is, <laughs> you know, Guessable is a game show on Comedy Central, which I was so grateful came along because it was during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's great fun. I get to meet a lot of new comedians and also some old friends. And But, you know, that's done four series. Who knows if that's happening again? Taskmaster you do once. Yeah. You know, I'm I, talking to you today, I have no TV in my diary. I have no no film. I'm not writing anything. The only things I have in my diary are my tour shows. Mm. That goes till November. So the only thing I'm thinking about is that and, and what I do best on stage is that. So you, you could, I don't know if you found this with your work, but as it gets successful, you obviously get very protective of it. Mm-hmm. And you go, maybe something in the past you were like, yeah. You know, you know, you're throwing shit at the wall or you're throwing it into the wind. But then when it actually starts happening, yeah, you go, right, I need to protect this. 
because I think I'm on to something here. It doesn't matter if 10, 100, 10,000 people like me. You know, Robin Williams said, keeping hold of the madness, the idea of keeping hold of that thing you did when you're a teenager. That is still dry. It's why we're talking now. Yeah. Because of what you had 15, 16, when that little bit of energy in your belly went, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, short answer, I'm just going to carry on wearing the wig and teeth. <laughs> but... This isn't like, you know, in 10 years' time, somebody goes, oh, I heard you on this podcast and you said you're never yeah. going to stop. No, I might, tomorrow morning, something might happen where I go, now I'm done. Yeah. It's what you do to get by. And I've started saying this on stage, but I'm, you know, I ask the audience, you know, what would you do if you had to stand up here for an hour and be funny? This is what I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish, I wish I was rubbish. You don't think I wish I was rubbish? <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> Every day I wake up thinking I was rubbish. <laughs> Not a decision I like, you know. Oh, anyway. Well, I mean, there's loads of things I want to talk to you about, but we're going to run out of time. But one of the things I really wanted to get into, because it's very specific, and you might not have anything to say on it, but again, I love the nuances of these things. I want to talk to you a little bit about cadence and the importance of cadence for comedy, because you're someone, along with Tim Key, I think, who've just got a really beautiful cadence of, of the way you deliver your lines, the way you do your comedy, the pauses. And I don't know if it's something that you just noticed you had or de- developed, but like a, a, a yourself and Tim, it kind of works in a... It's like we were saying about, with your cadence in particular, it's, it's like we were, were saying about a stop clock. Because you will take your time and have pauses and have gaps it's building up, it's building up and all of that. Whereas there is a more fast-paced, gag-based kind of comedy, it's bang, bang, bang. A Tim Vine is a great example, a master of it. It's just, here's the gag, I want you to have it as soon as possible. And then the opposite direction is a Stuart Lee who will stretch it out over a whole 30 minutes before he gives you the <laughs> the grace of the punchline. So... Yeah, how conscious are you of your cadence, of using your cadence? Is it something natural or something you've developed and worked on? And how key is it to your comedy, I guess? Well, I think it's it's the key. Yeah. Because it's all you have. Rhythm, timing. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I got heckled. Not heckled, but there was people in the front row at a gig. And it was, um, I don't know what had happened. Something had happened. I completely stopped the gig dead. Completely stopped it. And my support act... He went, he, he was injured. He went, wow, you stopped the gig. Like, you didn't try and keep the balloon in the air. You completely mm. dropped it. And I was like, yeah, I had to because my rhythm and my timing was now in their hands and I would have been chasing them with it. Or mm. I would have been on the back foot, on the ropes a little bit because all of a sudden I'm dealing with their timing and their timing's off because they've had a drink or whatever. I have to stop it dead, like cut off the engine and just start it up again. You know, when it comes to rhythm of uh, speaking, you know, there's some things where if you, you know, if you, if you stop or pause three quarters of the way through a sentence, it will make an audience lean in because they'll go, well, finish the sentence. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, doesn't matter if it's uh, funny <laughs> yeah. or just like, please make sense. <laughs> so it, it makes people stop. It makes an audience completely stop. Not because they're going, is this going to be funny or not? But they go, I do. I do just need to hear the end of that logic. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it's complete. Gobble. I need this. I need this wrapped up, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So it makes people lean in in that respect. But wearing uh, these, uh, wearing the fake teeth like I do on stage, it's also interesting in that I'm a bit like a ventriloquist in that I don't say many words beginning with like B mm-hmm. or P. Right. Because they will fly out. Right. So I have to actually, a lot of my writing has to have hard consonants, consonants, whatever that word is. Interesting. Because they are easier to say in my mouth. And a bit mm. like a ventriloquist, there are words that they just can't say. Like, you will never hear me on stage say the word bubble because I just can't, I, I cannot literally get That's my fascinating. I've never thought around. that at all, yeah. So that then leads, I think, to, you know, if you do read about how, you know, it, it, hard hard letters in words just are, are funnier because they're just, they're just more hard-hitting mm-hmm. in, in how they sound. And just through the nature of me having to wear these fake teeth, those are the only words that I could really properly say uh, without them flying out. So I've got a line in my show where I say Ribena, and every time I say it, I'm actually thinking, I don't know if I can get to the end of this sentence, because whenever I get to that peak, like in Newcastle, the teeth just flew out. And it, I mean, it's funny, and, you know, I, I, it's obviously... It's obviously, uh, it's obviously a lot of people's highlight, but <laughs> you don't want that happening all the time. So I'm kind of, I'm always, I've always been interested in, 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 in that almost not science, but just kind of like that, how, how certain rhythms and, mm. and certain words just are funnier. But when it comes to pauses, if you know, you can get a room laughing and you can get a room rocking and you know, you can, it's, it's a lot of fun and it rewards the big laughs more if you can slow it down Hmm. if you can pause if you can hold a room if you can get a room looking at you completely silent knowing that you can pop that with a laugh well then the the laugh is 10 times better than it would be if you were constantly chasing them i think chris rock said the reason why his style is the way it is is because he couldn't dare have that room not laughing Hmm. so you know Here's a line, here's a line, here's a line. You're going to laugh at one of those three. Whereas <laughs> I put very much all my eggs in one basket in that I go, we're going to hold, we're going to hold on for this one line and mm. I'm going to pray you all like it. But again, it does, I mean, it does go back to what I was saying earlier and anyone listening to this who does whatever creatively and like what you do and stuff, you can only do what you do your style is is yours and yours alone. Yeah. You look at Tim Vine and you go, yeah, I could probably make an hour show out of five of those jokes. Yeah. I'd be, be, <laughs> yeah. I'd be happy that those five yeah. last were the laughs in that, in that show. Yeah. I remember a friend staying at my house back in, when I was, uh, you know, 20 or something. I was still living at home. And he looks at my bookshelf. And I studied like English and drama at uni and he was looking at all these plays I had. And he went, ah, this explains a lot. And I went, what? He went, well, you've got about 50 plays here. And I was like, well, yeah, that's kind of what, that's what I've studied. And, but that does creep into, I think, uh, the shows that you write or stand up in that a lot of my, you know, I, I was one of these people that when I was 18, 19, walked around with Pinter and Beckett going, these guys are funny. <laughs> not, not understanding why they're funny <laughs> at all. Just going, yeah, yeah, these are the funny guys. But, <laughs> you know. I'm not saying that, well, we're, we're all influenced by these people in a way, but 
I didn't, you know, first time I did a comedy gig, was the first time I'd been in a comedy club kind of thing. So I didn't, you talk to Sean Walsh and he goes, I went to Brighton Dome every week, comedian, yeah. and it was bang, laughs, 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 laughs. And that's what he, he does. And that's what he, 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 um, he kind of is always aiming for and achieves, of course. So your influences, what you did when you were younger, what you read when you were 18, I don't know, it all kind of filters into, you know, being sat here, 35, you know, why do you wear a wig and teeth and spend half the show in complete silence? <laughs> well, <laughs> it, all, it all goes back to, you know. But the, the one thing I will say to end on that point about cadence, which I think is very important, obviously now, you watch stand, most stand up now, I think is consumed. If you're 18 or younger or whatever, it's like TikTok clips. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like you see the subtitles and you watch 30 seconds of comedians. I think the best way to get your comedic brain in gear and to be like, what are they doing? Is to listen to a comedian, mm -hmm. to go for a walk with your headphones on, listen to their special or listen to an old Richard Pryor album or listen to an old, I don't know, anyone. Because that's where you learn rhythm. You know, sometimes, you know, when you've listened to a stand-up, especially like someone like Richard Pryor, he's doing an act out. Mm. So you're, you're walking along the street and you're going, I haven't got a fucking clue what's going on. Yeah, people people yeah. are laughing. And yeah. you just remember 10 minutes ago, he said he was walking through the woods with his dad. That's it. And you hear people laughing and your brain's going, <laughs> you're just like, I don't know what's happening on stage. Yeah. Is, he, uh, is he on his knees? Is he kind of crawling about? But it gets your imagination going. Mm. And so yeah. I think when it comes to, I completely agree with you when it comes to the idea of cadence and rhythm being vital to, 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 to any comedy or, or spoken word, of course. I think one of the big keys is listening to stand-up, listening to poetry, listening to, to spoken word. The visual side of things, it's, it's, it's quite a, a modern thing. Yeah, of course. I, I genuinely believe, you know, and I try to remind myself of that. Like I, I released a vinyl of my last show and listening back was like pulling teeth because the 20th time you're like, fuck this. But I really do when I'm writing or when I'm performing, my job is to put a funny image in someone's head with the words that I'm saying. And the, the dream is that if there's someone sat in the back of a car, they're 12 years old, kind of bored out their mind with their parents or, you know, they're thinking, oh, I'd like to be a comedian one day and they find this little recording if you can paint that picture wherever they are in the world, maybe in their bedroom or, like I said, on holiday somewhere, if, if you can just make them escape into this funny world, then that's where words and how you say them are the key to good comedy. I love it. I love it. And that's the perfect note to end on. So thank you that very much for your time. By. Really has, isn't it? Again, I've, um, I, I wanted to talk about Greg James. Um, I wanted to talk about tour guides. I wanted to talk about films because I loved you on Brett's podcast and, and and we connect a lot on a lot of films, but it's flown by and we've had a, a lovely time. We'll have to do it again sometime, sir. I'd, I'd love to do that. Are you someone who's looking forward to uh, this new Russell Crowe film? Uh, which one? The, He's a the Exorcist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I'm... I'm kicking around Bristol before my show and I'm thinking I might be going to see that on my own. Do you do, you do a bit of that on tour? Because the one time I did a book tour, it was the one time I was touring on my own 
And honestly, I feel bad for everyone I've ever toured with because it was my favourite tour I've ever done because I went to the cinema in the day, every day, just went and caught a film, had just silence. And then because it was a book tour, I was doing a bit of spoken word, but mainly just doing Q&As and stuff. So there wasn't that much pressure. So I was just turning up 20 minutes before the gig, having watched a film, had a takeaway. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, sun- this on- is life. <laughs> <laughs> on Sunday in York, I brought... Uh, I had to dial down my John Wick 4 energy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, mate, I, I, to be and honest. That's I, relentless. That's a lot of energy. I went and saw hell. that the other day. I caught it in IMAX and it was, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I was like, it was one long action sequence, really. It was well, I don't, heart racing. You know, but I don't know. There's only so many times a guy cannot get shot before you're like, well, bugger me. He's either going to be hurt. Like, do you know when he makes the top of the steps? Yeah. And then he rolls back down again. I was like, fucking hell, mate. I was like, please, God. go again. There was, it took me a good 20 minutes t- t- to remember that they've got these suits that have Kevlar kind of thing. Oh, I didn't Because I was like, I was like, these lads are just fucking <laughs> getting shot clean in the chest and getting up and having another go. So this is ridiculous. Like, oh no, they've all got these Kevlar suits. So it's, yeah, there's a level of, right, got you. Yeah, it took me, I mean, I haven't seen the last three. So you can imagine where my head was. I didn't know. You know they're closing the hotel down. I'm like, what hotel? <laughs> Honestly, it was, it was. I mean, that's but that's what you do on tour. You go like you go, on tour. You're like, I got. I can't be walking around for five hours. I got to do something. Yeah, and that's so, a good. That's almost a three hour film. There, that's a good. That's going to have killed a lot. God, that that went on. Get you in out the rain. Keep you warm. <laughs> That's where most. That's where. That's how most people make their money in film. It's just getting people out of the rain, <laughs> getting them off the streets into Even. the seats. Well, I love it. Well, as said, you've ex- you're extending your sorrow. I'll put all this in the intro, but you're extending your sorrow theatre run, and you're going all around the country. And I can't wait to see how it's all turned out. Again, it's it's always exciting seeing different variations of works in progress. Because again, I saw you doing a work in progress. You mentioned Ramesh earlier. I saw Ramesh doing a work in progress once. There seemed to be very little progress needed. It was the most polished comedy show I've ever seen. But then I've seen other people who it is very much, I've got a loose idea. I'm kind of, I'm working some things out. Yeah, it's, I guess you're, 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 you know, you're, you're well versed in it all when you do it yourself, but you probably get a lot out of, watching a work yeah. in progress more than the finished thing. Yeah, 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 um, completely. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, the big laughs that were in that show in that week in Edinburgh last year are still there. Yeah. It's how you frame it. It's how you make it a show. It's mm. also getting it in your bones, being loose enough up there where you can maybe riff around something if an audience are good or, you know, it's, it's about knowing it. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of work in progress is learning it and getting those rhythms into your head. Yeah. So when you get up there, you can you're not panicking about what what's next or or whether it's it really is just about that. But no, about knowing it. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm the same as you. I'd I'd rather see a work in progress of someone I know and like than because it's amazing what 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 falls out. Like I've seen people where I go, oh that bit was great, and then you see their final show nowhere to be seen. Where was it? Yeah. And it, but but you there's a bit that I cut out in my in my last show in in this show, and I know it's a good laugh, but it's gone because it just wasn't fitting. It just didn't fit in that hour, and 
you know, you've got to kill your babies. Really. It's like it's it's a it's a nightmare at times because you think, fuck, you know, what am I replacing that with? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, it's it's the, the work in progresses are done now. It's very much uh, a work. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like that. Well, as said, I appreciate you taking the time. I've caught you a load of times over the years and I'm a big fan of what you do. So thank you for coming and having a chat. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That honestly flew by and we could have talked for hours. I wanted to talk a load about him living with Greg James in their younger days. I'm a big fan of Greg James. I did did one radio panel thing with him once and I absolutely adored him. I wanted to talk about tour guide stuff because one of the best comedy performances I've ever seen was by a tour guide and I can't remember anything about it. And I'm convinced that that tour guide is now probably a comedian I love. It might have been John. It might have been John. But I remember just thinking all through this tour, this person must be a comedian. This is amazing. There's loads I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk more about films because John's got really good taste in films and varied taste as well, I think. Um, yeah, anyway, we didn't get to talk about any of that, but, li- but look at what we did get to talk about. I forced like t- t- 20 minutes on cadence, you lucky fuckers. Anyway, I'll be back next week. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta!